All right, well, let me ask you guys some questions related to the Word of God and the nature of the Word of God. Um, John 1 calls Jesus the Word. So what's the relationship between Jesus the Word and Scripture as the Word of God? Carl, how about we start with you? Um, I think uh, two comments I'd make. On one level, the, the you know, word is a, is a word that can have a variety of meanings. And just because you use the same word to refer to two separate things doesn't mean you're positing any real identity between them. So clearly there's a difference between Jesus Christ, the person, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, uh, and Scripture as written down. One's a person, one's a book. Uh, I think the, there is a relationship between the two, though, and that is that uh, Scripture ultimately points towards and focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the um, disciples on the road to Emmaus when Christ meets them and they don't recognize him uh, and uh, they tell Christ, well, we, there was this man we knew and we thought he was the Messiah and, uh, and now he's died and, and we're devastated. And uh, the response of Christ is, you know, foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have said about me. Uh, the relationship between Christ the Word and Scripture as the Word is that the Scriptures point towards Jesus Christ. He is the, the culmination of the scriptural narrative and, and, the, and the prime content of what Scripture teaches. Well, I think there's a general connection in that Christ in his incarnation um, was God spoke through Christ. Uh, if you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. Gospel of John brings that out, what I do. Um, I've seen the Father do, and so if you've seen what I do, you know, the Father, the words that I speak, the Father's speaking through me. So, uh, And, of course, Gospel of John calls him the Word of God. And so uh, God has spoken through Jesus uh, and the Scriptures. God has spoken through the Scriptures. So there is a general revelatory parallel. But some people try to very narrowly compare the two, and I think we have to be careful there, uh, because um, with Christ, you've got two natures, divine and human in one person, and with Scripture, you have two persons, God and the human writer, and you have one Scripture. And so I think that we have to be very careful of making very specific comparisons beyond that general comparison that they are both uh, the revelation of God. Um, so I think I'd leave it at that. Hebrews 1, would that be relevant here? Uh, God has spoken in many ways mm -hmm. in times past. Now he's spoken yeah. in his son, sort of the culmination of yeah. all of that. Yeah, well, it does compare before. him there. Thank you. It does compare him there to the Old Testament writings. Yeah. So he's the culmination of that speech. And of course, then. Uh, the New Testament uh, writings, um, um, because of that great covenantal act of Jesus Christ coming, I think as Carl mentioned, whenever there's a, uh, an act uh, of God accomplishing something in redemptive history, there is an explanation of the act. The scriptures are, are the explanation of the great uh, climactic act of God's speech in Christ. But because the, uh, the revelation of God has now been embodied in Christ, that shouldn't take us away from the scriptures themselves, should it? No. Okay. Just making sure. Uh, let's talk about 
the relationship between the nature of God and the nature of Scripture. Are there connections there? Um, is it one of those things you pull on one and it will affect the other? Well, it is interesting. There's been some debate um, among evangelicals. And again, when I say evangelicals, I don't know what I mean. Um, <laughs> because it, it, everybody's an evangelical today, and it's a huge, huge umbrella. It didn't used to be back in mid-20th century. But uh, nevertheless, there, there is a, a book has been written arguing that the traditional view of the inerrancy of the Bible is not biblical. Now, the traditional, the traditional view he has in mind, this particular writer who, uh, as I say, he's, he's taught at the Evangelical Seminary in England, um, the, the, the usual deduction is made that God is perfect. I think that's a pretty good deduction. His character is perfect. Therefore, what God speaks orally is perfect. So far, so good for this particular writer. But the third one is that since God is perfect, his oral word is perfect, that therefore his written word is perfect. And uh, this writer says, nowhere in the Bible do you find where it extends the perfection of God's character to the written Bible. He says, that's a logical deduction, and uh, on one level it makes sense, but it's not biblical. You can't find a passage that really connects God's perfection in his character with his word. And uh, so I started thinking when I read this, I thought, hmm, um, yeah, I think there are passages. And one such passage, for example, is Revelation 3.14, where it says that Christ is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation, i.e. the new creation of God. This says that Christ is the amen, the faithful and true witness. What's amazing about that is it's an, uh, almost a quotation from Isaiah chapter uh, 65 in verses uh, 15, especially verse 16, where it speaks of God as the amen, the faithful and true. What a high statement about Jesus. In fact, Isaiah 65, uh, 16 is the only place where it says uh, that it addresses a person in the Bible with amen. It's God. The only other place is Revelation 3.14. Jesus is the Amen. I mean, he's identified with God. He's, he's a divine person. And so uh, he's the faithful and true witness. So his character is true and his witness, what he says, is true. And then very intriguingly, uh, in chapter 21 and uh, verse 5, uh, you have this statement that says, the one who sits on the throne uh, uh, says, Right for these words, uh, these are true words of God. And then it says, behold, I create all things new. But this phrase, right, John, and why are, why are you to write? These are actually true and faithful words of God. Well, that, that phrase, faithful and true, is found only back in chapter 3, verse 14. And this is a, an explicit development here in chapter 21 where John is to write God's oral word because they are faithful and true. In other words, there's an actual command for him to now put into writing what has been said uh, that represents God's faithful character. And uh, so we do actually have a place where um, uh, 
God's faithful character uh, is true and uh, his oral word is true and that's to be put into writing. And now, now one person is commenting, yeah, but when John went to record it, okay, he's commanded to write, but when he went to record it, couldn't there have been a little slippage? Was God actually superintending the recording? Yeah, he gives him the command, but was he superintending the recording? And uh, in fact, uh, Carl mentioned, rattled off a number of passages, was it last night, uh, uh, about John in the book of Revelation writing the word of God. You might remember the seven letters where Jesus uh, uh, commands John, write. Now all of a sudden, Jesus is speaking. He's, John's writing uh, they're the words of Jesus. And at the end it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So these are human words. They're Christ's words. They're the Spirit's words. And, uh, of course, the very end of the book, it says anyone who um, uh, adds to these words, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. Anyone who takes away from these words, God will take uh, his part away from the tree of life and his part in the holy city. And so obviously the words as they're written down have indeed been superintended by God through his prophet John. So we do actually have an actual explicit uh, scriptural explanation of what this author says can't be found. God's character is true, his oral word is true, and uh, uh, the extension of that oral word to the written is not only commanded by God, but superintended by the Spirit. I better stop there. (laughs) But this is a good example of the relationship of God's character to the character of the word. Carl, anything to add to that? Any uh, other attributes of God, any part of his nature that we can also see in scripture apart from perfection and truth? Uh, Power is an obvious one. Uh, That scripture is, uh, as as Greg referred to a couple of times last night, I think from Acts 7, scripture is a living word. As God is living and active, so his, his word is not just not just a book of logarithms, but it's the speech of the living God. Mm. Good. I do think here the sovereignty of God is important. Yeah. Um, those sometimes you find uh, who don't affirm the absolute sovereignty of God. And by that I mean that leaves and birds don't fall from heaven apart from God's hand, even to that detail. Um, if that's the case, then it makes complete sense that when humans write, they will be sovereignly superintended by God, though their styles are yeah. different, as we talked about. Um, um, but those who don't affirm the absolute sovereignty of God, sometimes you'll find, say, well, you know, uh, humans have independence from God and they're not always under God's sovereign hand. Well, then that makes sense that, well, maybe some human error could have crept in there. Yeah. So I do think an absolute understanding of the sovereignty of God is very important. Is that the doctrine of uh, compatibilism, that uh, human responsibility and uh, the validity of a will um, and God's sovereignty are compatible? The Westminster Confession talks about that. Mm-hmm. Would that be a doctrine that really speaks to yes. that concept of dual authorship? Yes. I like the way you put it. God is sovereign. Humans are responsible. But there, it's not the mystery between God is sovereign and humans are somehow autonomous. Right. And that's usually the way evangelicals often think of it. And uh, I think it's not quite the wrong way to think, right way to think of it. Okay, related perhaps, but uh, a different question is, is Scripture made up of propositions or is it personal? Should we treat Scripture something like an impersonal owner's manual? 
or something more intimate, like a love letter? How, how do we view scripture? Definitely an impersonal owner's manual. That's a joke. <laughs> I think the, 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 the question itself is built in some ways on a false antithesis. Uh, yeah. I called my wife last night. At the end of the conversation, I said, I love you, just where I signed off. Um, that's a proposition. It contains clear propositional content. It describes a state of affairs. At the same time, it does something. It, isn't just a, it, didn't, it wasn't just like me saying to my wife, two plus two equals four. four. It actually <laughs> helps cement, strengthen, reinforce a relationship that already exists. It describes a state of affairs, and it reinforces that. So I don't buy the, the opposition that some people seem to think exists between propositions and, and personal interpersonal communication, if I could put it that way. I think I understand what people who make that criticism are concerned about. Certainly, we don't want to look at Scripture as just a set of objective logarithms, multiplication tables, those kind of statements. But on the other hand, uh, pro, you know, Scripture is full of propositions. Scripture is the book that, as I said last night, defines and uh, delimits, determines, shapes, founds the relationship between God and God's people. Is full of propositions that are all part and parcel of establishing and maintaining that personal relationship that actually exists between Christ and his church. Yeah. Okay. Carl, you mentioned the rule of faith um, mentioned in the Apostolic Fathers, those theological essentials. What are they? What are these theological essentials that even if they used slightly different language they had in common? Um, can you give us some specifics? Well, in terms of historically, the rule of faith addressed such issues as uh, the, the oneness of God, that there was just one God, and this one God was the creator of all things in, in, on, in heaven and earth, uh, that he had a son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and became incarnate and really took human flesh, died, rose again for the salvation of his people, ascended to heaven, will return again at the end of time to judge the living and the dead. Historically, those were the sort of points that the, the rule of faith covered. I would say that they are implicit in Romans 10. I talked this morning, mentioned Romans 10. Uh, uh, if you uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, if you think about what does it mean that Jesus is Lord, what does it mean that God raised him from the dead, you're going to expand that to cover the basic points in, in the rule of faith, I think so. If you want to go away and probably Google the rule of faith on the internet and find the various examples for yourself, or the Apostles' Creed would be, I think, the later formalization of the kind of points that were covered in, in the rule of faith. But the basic elements of the gospel, not all that Christians should believe, but the basic minimum, if you like, that Christians have to believe, okay. I'd say. You also talked about uh, what it takes for someone to be in church membership. You said that that should be a pretty wide open door. Yeah. Um, so would you say that those are, those are doctrines upon which people should agree upon for membership? I think those are the basic elements of, uh, of making a credible Christian profession. Yeah. Yeah. Great. If you believe there are two gods, you've got a problem. Yeah. Put it that way. Right. So when was the Bible canonized, and did the Catholic Church do this? It's a historical question. Start with you, Carl. Yeah, the, the history of, the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the, the production of the canon is, 
it's a long and complicated one, and it really doesn't come to a close until uh, the 16th century with the, the struggle between Protestantism and Catholicism when canonical issues really become somewhat acute in the middle of the 16th century. Now, that can be a very disturbing thought to people. You think, oh, wow, so we didn't have a Bible until the middle of the 16th century. Well, no, the, the story is, is actually less disturbing than that when you look at the details. I think by the middle of the second century, if you look at, say, the writings of the Apostolic Fathers or the writings of uh, the Greek apologists, you already have functionally in place the vast majority of the books in the New Testament canon. Um, you know, canon formation is generally, Christians are concerned about the formation of the New Testament. We know there are issues with the old, but we're really interested about how did the church decide that these New Testament works were part of the New Testament and, and, and not just early Christian writings that weren't inspired. I think by the middle of the, the second century, you can make a good case for saying the Gospels, most of the letters of Paul, already in place as authoritative in the church. And the debates tend to be about uh, the smaller epistles, not, uh, I wouldn't say, not, the, you know, not lesser material because it's all divinely inspired, but in terms of constructing a coherent gospel theology, the shorter epistles that make less contribution to that overall theology. Would that be a fair account, Greg, from a New Testament yeah, I perspective? Yeah, I, I think so, because, of course, one of the criteria uh, among the church fathers was uh, apostleship, apostolicity. Uh, that if you can demonstrate that in the book, it should be seen as included in the canon. Uh, but then some will say, well, wait a minute, how about Luke? Wasn't an apostle. Um, and uh, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who that was. Um, though the early church held, some held it was Paul, it's now pretty well concluded. We, we don't know who that was. So what do you do? Um, some have even contended that maybe the book of Revelation is not the John, not John the Apostle. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't be the end of my world if uh, I found out that were true. Um, he is a prophet. And, and, and so th those who weren't apostles were a part of the apostolic circle. I mean, you take Luke. Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. And so uh, those in the apostolic circle are uh, considered New Testament prophets. We know Ephesians 2.20 talks about uh, the church is founded on the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so um, we, we, we know there were a, a group of, uh, of prophets within attached or associated in some way with the apostolic circle. So... So all of these writings that can be traced back to the apostolic circle become canonical. They are the legal representatives of Christ now that he's left the earth. Um, and so uh, you might remember when Christ says, he who receives you receives me. Uh, he who uh, receives you, your word receives my word. The, the, the idea of apostleship, were they were like lawyers. So the person, the lawyer in court represents... Um, the defendant. And so the lawyer's words are the defendant's words. The apostle's words are Christ's words. Uh, this is really laid out in a nice little book by a, guy, uh, by a fellow by the name of Herman Ritterboss. It's a, it's a, it's a book called uh, The New Testament and Redemptive History, if any of you were interested. To go back to the historical question, Carl, was there a, an official council that settled this even beyond second century? In the fourth century, um, uh, Council of Constantinople, I'm sure my mind's gone blank, so the Constantinople or Nicaea. 
addresses the issue. It becomes a, the, the role of the church becomes acute because one of the things that uh, is debated in the 16th century is why do people believe the canon? Is it because the church says these books are canonical or is it because the books are in and of themselves canonical? And it's a division really between Catholics and Protestants and to an extent persists to this day. I think the Protestant response that I think uh, that I agree with is that the church recognized those books that were inspired. The church didn't make them inspired. The church didn't make them canonical. The church came to recognize them as canonical. One of the things I think it's important to do, though, as individual Christians is to understand how that dynamic works out in our own lives. I mean, I was converted from a non-Christian background, and first Sunday I go along to church. Um, why do I take the Bible? Why do I take the canon? Of the, of the Bible as the canon. Well, I did it that Sunday because the church told me. I was in a church and this was the, the canon as far as the church said it was so. Over a period of time, though, as the Bible was consistently preached and applied to me by a minister as I read it for myself, so the beauty, the coherence, and the power of those books impresses itself on the individual. So I think as, as Protestants, it's, it's worth acknowledging that often early in our pilgrimage, we believe the Bible because the church tells us so. But on the basis of that, we then move on ultimately to believing the Bible because the Bible itself is self-authenticating. So you don't have to be Catholic in order to believe that we got the right books. Is that what no. you're saying? No, not at all. Okay. You don't need an external authority ultimately to do that. Is it self-authentication? That's what we would call that? Yeah. The scripture has a self-authenticity about it? Yeah, and I think there are, there are analogies to other things in our lives. Um, how do I know my mother is my mother? I do. I'm not sure that I can step outside of my relationship with my mother in order to prove that. I could probably dig up a birth certificate. I could have a genetic test done, etc., etc. But bottom line is, I believe my mother's my mother because she is. And I'm prepared to live on that basis. Well, it's the same with Scripture. I mean, a way to put it would be, did the church create the canon, or did the canon create the church? Hmm. You know, I think the canon created the church. The church recognized it. There's a nice book that really argues well on this because of the flurry of, of some uh, uh, scholars saying that um, a lot of the apocryphal gospels really bl- should have been in the canon, and it was just a political power move that they weren't in it. Uh, the authors are uh, Andreas Kustenberger, and uh, this fellow from Reformed. Uh, Mike Kruger. Mike Kruger. You remember the name of that book? It's published by Crossway. Anyway. The Heresy of Orthodoxy. Yes. Yeah. The only heresy today is orthodoxy. It's called the heresy of orthodoxy because we're all to respect one another. Our views say they're equally true. But if you're really an orthodox Bible-believing Christian, you say Christ and his word is the only truth. So the heresy of orthodoxy. But it's really good on this notion of why the apocryphal gospels uh, from the second and third centuries, should not be included in the New Testament canon. So I direct you to that that book. Let's defend Scripture from another angle now. Uh, are some of the Bible stories borrowed from the myths of the nations around Israel? And then, if so, does that mean that these stories are just myths? Or, I mean, even you know, Adam, Noah, uh, Sodom, the Jonah story—the really far out there stories. These are these are real. Um, it's going to take me a minute to answer that. Okay. I'll do my best. Um, 
there are some similarities between some of these stories in the Bible and the ancient Near East that are, that are myths, the, the creation story. There are these cosmogonies that are myths about how the cosmos came into being. Um, there's a story about a flood uh, in the Mesopotamian myths. And, uh, um, and, of course, then we have a flood story in, in the Bible. Is, so really, is the Bible partake in these myths, or are these just mythical stories? Um, when you look at them very carefully, maybe one of the best examples is the, um, the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. Some would say, well, that's just, you know, the author of Genesis is just reflecting uh, the general idea of the myth of how the world came into being uh, from the Mesopotamian myths. And um, but when you start looking at Genesis carefully, in the ancient or eastern myths, there, there are multiple gods uh, that are in, in existence in the beginning. There's only one god in Genesis 1. Um, furthermore, uh, you've got uh, pre-existing matter already there in the ancient Near Eastern myths. A god is cut in two, and that forms uh, uh, the cosmos. Um, whereas in Genesis 1, uh, I think we do have a creation from nothing. Some, some evangelicals have argued that's not the case, that you just begin, verse 1 is the title in verse 2, uh, and uh, there was uh, um, um, chaos and in, 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 in emptiness, um, and the Spirit was hovering over it. Um, but elsewhere, certainly in the Bible, I think there's the notion of a creation from nothing. So we've got a creation from nothing. Ancient Near Eastern myths, you start with uh, uh, already existing matter. And if, it, if, if, you already, if you start with God and already existing matter, then you've got a dualism. God has to stand behind it all. So some have said, yeah, there's some similarities between the ancient Near East and Genesis 1, but Genesis 1 is intentionally, it has some of these similarities to show that it's the true account. It's a kind of a polemic against uh, the ancient Near Eastern um, accounts. Um, so uh, uh, I, I think that um, there, there are a number of ways that you can look at these similar accounts, whether it's the creation, whether it's the flood. And um, first way is that um, they're polemics, uh, that there's an intentional borrowing by the biblical writer, and there's some changes it's not just unconsciously adopted um, to show that this is the true account. And uh, secondly, uh, you probably do because of, because of common grace. God communicates in a general way to all of humanity. Uh, remember Romans 1, that unbelievers perceive God's eternal attributes, the eternal attributes of the invisible God. Um, so, for example, Psalm 29 speaks of God, Yahweh, is the Lord of nature. He's the Lord of fire and of the storm and of the rain. And it's actually directly borrowed from um, uh, the attributes of Baal, the fertility god of the Canaanites. So some say, well, here's another example, just unconscious borrowing. No, what the author is saying is uh, what the Canaanites realized by common grace that they attributed to their god, well, they're right, those are divine attributes, but it's only true of the one god of Israel. Um, some similarities, thirdly, can come about by um, common traditions. For example, the, the creation story. Probably, 
the reason you have so many creation stories and flood stories, by the way. Every culture, even today, some Indian cultures, some uh, uh, cultures in uh, 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 other areas still have these flood stories, and they have a creation story. Why is that? Well, you could say with creation, everybody has to account for how things came into being. Okay, But how about a flood story? Why in the world? I remember I went to... Uh, to um, a college in my second year. I'd been to a military school my first year in college, and when I, I went to another university, transferred, and found out I could take Bible for credit. I was so excited, and immediately I got in there. I'd just become a Christian, and the professor said, ah, creation story's a myth, a flood story's a myth. Every culture has it, and I kind of feebly raised my hand. I said, well, if every culture has a flood story, isn't that kind of weird? I said, maybe... A lot of these cultures have garbled forms of a true story. So my, my point is, is that I think probably you do have these, these ancient traditions that, that arise from true reports, and then they become garbled. Scripture give us, gives us, for example, of the Noah story and the flood there, I think, a true account. Um, but there's similarities because you're going to have common ancient traditions. And fourthly, I do think sometimes the biblical writers will borrow things from the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, Take circumcision. Circumcision pre-existed the nation of Israel. Well, did Israel just borrow it and unconsciously, oh, well, they have circumcision, we'll have it too. Um, um, Well, I I think that they adopt it, and then God fills it with his special revelatory truth. Same is true with temples. If you look at the temples of Israel and of uh, the ancient Near East, they're all tripartite. They have three sections. They have all this floral imagery in it. And it may be that Israel was commissioned to have a temple like the ancient Near East, but filled with new revelatory content. Though I tend to think that the reason there are similarities is they all go back to a common ancient tradition of Eden as a temple. And that's why you've got so much floral imagery in those, uh, those temples. So those are four ways that you can look at these similarities between the myths in the ancient Near East and the Bible and some of the stories, and very consistent with the high view of Scripture. A fifth way is not consistent. That is, that the Israelite authors, they just unconsciously imbibed these myths, and uh, they became, uh, they they thought they perhaps were true, true myths, Uh, but they really weren't, and and they used them to explain how the world came into being or Noah's flood, whatever. Um, One thing about Israel, they knew that they were different from other peoples. And um, I think it's unlikely that they were going to be unconsciously borrowing uh, myths from the gods of the nations around. They knew that the Lord was one God. (laughs) That's one huge uh, difference already. So those are, uh, I think, four ways, the first four ways that you can um, uh, see why there are these similarities. Fifth way, I don't think works. Um, so I, I think maybe I should leave it at that. Yeah. I'd be happy if anybody wanted to press a little further because it's a huge topic. Yeah. Why don't we talk about contradictions within Scripture or seeming contradictions? Uh, are there contradictions in Scripture? Uh, does this fit with inerrancy? Carl, why don't we give him They're all looking at me. Yeah. You're the biblical guy. (laughs) I think that anybody who says that there are no passages in Scripture 
that are hard to understand, um, I think they're fooling themselves. And there do appear to be places, um, if you compare certain gospel accounts, uh, that look to be the same event. Um, one place Jesus says, take only a staff. In other places, don't take a staff. Um, what's going on? Um, they're, they're uses of the Old Testament uh, in, in the New that are very difficult to understand. I'm, I'm not sure how they might relate back to the text that they come from. But uh, the, these are in the minority. If all of Scripture was filled with this sort of thing, maybe I'd re-examine my view of inerrancy. But Scripture is not filled with these kinds of problems. There are those problems. Carl mentioned at the end of 2 Peter 3. There are some things difficult to understand in Paul. Tough passages. And I think some of these do appear like contradictions. But as uh, uh, Carl quoted Augustine uh, this morning, uh, where Augustine said, you know, when I come across something that looks like a mistake, I assume either that there's a textual problem, um, that it hadn't been transmitted in the Greek or the Hebrew manuscripts in the way it should have been, or that the translator, in this case of the Vulgate, has gotten it wrong, or that there's a limitation with my understanding. And when you think about it, someone say, oh, Beal, you know, you, you, you just have this presupposition that the Bible is inerrant. Well, let's take the flip side. Let's say, oh, um, okay, there's a contradiction, uh, and that's an error. Think about the confidence in that. That is an absolute error. That, that takes a lot of certainty. How do you know it's an error? Often, what it seemed to be errors, archaeological discoveries have been discovered, have been found. Show, no, it's not. So... Um, you know, I think it takes a lot of, some think it takes a lot of confidence to say the Bible's inerrant. I think it takes a lot of what we might call epistemological confidence to declare something as an error. But with an atheistic interpreter, let's say here on the stage right now, we would look at these hard passages, and we would agree, this is a difficulty. In the same breath, he would say, error. I would say, I just keep with difficulty. I admit the difficulty. You don't want to steamroll. You don't want to harmonize if there's no harmony there. You just leave it there. You leave, I, I think of it as a, as a golf green. The Bible's a golf green. Most of it's pretty smooth. But you might have some weeds here and there. I'm not going to mow over them. I'll leave them standing. And what's been interesting is a lot of evangelical students, they'll look at these problems. No solution's been offered yet. And later, maybe, if I have some time, I'd like to give uh, one or two illustrations. And they do their dissertations on it, and they solve the problem. And because, why do they do that? Because no one else is solving it. Because all the liberals, they're not going to work on that problem. It's an error. (laughs) We know what it is. The evangelicals got a high view of Scripture. He says, you know what? I'm going to keep doing research on that. I'm going to keep doing research on that. I might not find the answer. But 7.5 times out of 10, they do find the answer. And uh, I have some specific examples in mind, but I better stop. Can you just rattle off a few just so that people have uh, a category for what we're yeah, talking yeah. about in mind? Um, if you remember the beginning of Mark, um, and I, I want to read it to you here. Ah, finally, a use of my case. Ah. Always bring my case along. Uh, and they, people wonder why I bring my case along. Um, in Mark, at the very beginning, uh, Mark says... 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Um, anybody know where that's from? Malachi 3.1. Excuse me. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Malachi 3.1. Then he continues. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Okay, finally we get Isaiah. That's from Isaiah 40 in verse 3. Some evangelicals said, well, the reason that um, uh, Isaiah is put before Malachi there is because Isaiah was seen as the head of the prophets. Well, I don't know. That, That didn't quite wash. Some not very good harmonizations were attempted Finally, I had a student. His name was Rick Watts. Went to Gordon-Conwell, wanted to do his dissertation on Mark. He went to Cambridge. And um, he uh, was, was doing work on Mark, and he, what he discovered, he, he, he worked on the use of the Old Testament in Mark, and he found that Isaiah was the dominant influence from the Old Testament in Mark. And then he began to study the use of the Old Testament in Judaism of the time. And... What he found is that the early Jewish rabbis and early Jewish commentators, they would explain one text in the Old Testament by another text. And sometimes the text they had in mind that they wanted to explain, they would cite second. They would cite another text first and then the main text. And the first text was seen as supporting and explaining the second. And what he concluded here, is that the reason Isaiah is put first is because Malachi is subservient to Isaiah. There are hardly any other other references to Malachi. But this is an example where uh, uh, Isaiah is quoted first because uh, 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 that's the dominant influence. That sets the tone for the whole gospel. Now, a a professor by the name of Morna Hooker, um, who was the... um, uh, held a big professorial chair at at Cambridge at the time, was giving a paper on the use of the Old Testament in Mark, and Rick Watts, the student I'm telling you about, who uh, was working on this passage, um, um, when he came up with his explanation of this passage, I remember in her paper that she said, oh, you know, Mark, says Isaiah uh, uh, here, but it's Malachi. Mark had a schoolboy knowledge of the scriptures. Typical error. And she moves on. This is what I call the fundamentalism of liberalism. They have their assured results, and they're confident in them. They don't look at it anymore. She was convinced by uh, Watts's view, but it took a whole dissertation to do it. But it's a good example of what can happen when you have a... Some people think outside evangelicalism, oh, you have a high view of Scripture, you put your head in the sand. In reality, sometimes it can go the other way. When you're assured of the errors, the purported errors in Scripture, you put your head in the sand, you don't research that anymore. But those uh, with a high view of scripture who are not willing to steamroll forced harmonizations to prove their view on inerrancy, well, they'll keep working and doing research. And sometimes they'll, they'll find the answer. That, that's a good example of an overturning of an assured result of scholarship of Mark's schoolboy erroneous view of scripture. That's great. Carl, you talked about the word inerrancy. You happen to mention that uh, in Britain that word isn't used so much. Is that because British evangelicals don't believe in inerrancy? 
Uh, no, I think that there, are, there are a number of reasons. One, I think, is the, the, the word infallibility has, by and large, done the work of inerrancy in Britain. I mean, if you look at Jim Packer's little book, Fundamentalism and the Word of God, which was written, I think, in the early 1960s, when Packer was still based in Britain, it argues for what I would regard as basically an inerrantist position. So it's definitely present in, in British evangelicalism. It's just that the term is not as, as familiar to many as it would be over here. What about the concept of Scripture not being inerrant or infallible, but being authoritative? Does that work? No. Okay. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> not a very good question. I think your problem of saying Scripture is authoritative, but is not infallible or inerrant is... If Scripture is authoritative, you have to take Scripture's own claims about itself seriously. And if those claims are that it is inerrant, inspired, then for it to be authoritative, those claims have to be true. And I think that therein lies the problem. So, well, Scripture is authoritative, but it isn't inerrant. Well, then you have to say Scripture is authoritative in all areas except for when it speaks about itself. That, I think, is, is problematic. Yeah. So should we be suspicious about people who are afraid of either the word infallible or inerrant? I, I think you should talk to people and find out why they're afraid of those terms. I mean, the, those terms don't occur in Scripture. I, you, one wouldn't want to go to, to the stake for those terms. Uh, and sometimes people object to inerrancy because they think it reduces Scripture to a book of logarithms or a, a, a multiplication table, that kind of thing, that, that it's just propositions. It isn't relational or personal. Um, so somebody can reject the term and still hold to the, the orthodox concept, I think. So if somebody rejects the term inerrancy, I'd want to chat to them, well, why? Do you know what it means? Uh, what are your concerns with it? So what are the parameters as to its, uh, its scope, its intention? Is, is it a science book? Sometimes that's used, right? People discredit Scripture in one form or another because, uh, it, you know, it says the sun rises. Yeah, well, we all say the sun rises, uh, in my experience. I mean, I talk about the sun rising, the sun setting. I think Scripture offers a phenomenological account of, of what's going on there. I don't think it's a science textbook. I don't think it's irrelevant to science, though. Mm. Clearly, it teaches that there's a creator and there is a creation, there's that distinction is taught in Scripture, which must have implications for how you understand uh, the world and, and the cultures, science, etc., of the world. So not a scientific textbook, but clearly has implications for, for science. Okay. Now tonight, Carl, you'll talk about the clarity of Scripture, and so uh, feel free to uh, cut this short at any point if it's going to steal your thunder for tonight. But why is the clarity of Scripture important and related what's the scope of the clarity of scripture does it apply to the book of revelation old testament prophets um well first of all i'll answer the second part of that first when when we talk about the clarity or sometimes the perspicuity of scripture we don't mean that scripture is clear or perspicuous in every single verse I mean, if you think about it scripture is given in hebrew and greek if you don't have hebrew and greek it's not perspicuous in that sense at all. What the reformers meant by the perspicuity of Scripture was that the central message of Scripture was plain. 
And the central message of Scripture could be grasped and understood by the humblest believer. Uh, why is that important? Because if, if the message of Scripture is not clear and plain, then you are permanently at the mercy of a priesthood of some kind, whether it's a scholarly priesthood or an ecclesiastical priesthood. Uh, your salvation, if you like, has to be mediated through one priesthood or another. So even passages that relate to something necessary for salvation, Christians disagree on the interpretation of those passages at times. So how is the average Christian supposed to wade through the arguments and find the truth about how to interpret a passage that should be clear? I think the, question, the way you pose the question uh, is helpful in some ways because I'm not sure that Christians do disagree on that much which is necessary for salvation. I think we disagree on baptism. I think we disagree on some of the details of the Lord's Supper. I think we disagree on details of church government. None of those things would I regard as being necessary for salvation. Not that they're not necessary in some contexts. Uh, and when thinking of the, the perspicuity of Scripture, often uh, if you go back to the, the 16th and 17th century and you go back to, and you think about Europe in the 16th and 17th century, Europe is an incredibly diverse continent. I mean, in America, there's a lot of talk about diversity. The irony is, actually, there's a huge amount of uniformity in America. We think America is diverse because our minds have been captured by skin color. We think it's diverse because we have people of different skin colors. Actually, if you look at America in terms of what I would describe as its popular culture, there's a huge amount of homogeneity there. Uh, I can go into, I don't know if you have an olive garden in Albuquerque. Is there an olive garden? I've never been to it, but I can tell you where the restrooms are. <laughs> because it's just the same as the one in Philadelphia. Um, I could walk the streets of Albuquerque and have a conversation with anybody about sports teams because there is this popular culture glue that binds things together. You go to Europe in the 16th, 17th century, you don't have that. There is no popular culture that binds the, the cultures of Europe together. There, is no, there are no chain, commer, you know, commercial chain enterprises that mean you can get the same food in the north of Scotland that you can in the, in, in the, in the, in the east of Romania. But what you do have in Europe in the 16th, 17th century is an era of great confessionalization. Protestants are producing confessions all over the place. And if you compare the different confessional documents that are produced in the 16th, 17th century with each other from all over Europe, you find an incredible amount of common ground in terms of what these Christian theologians are coming up with from reading the Bible and looking at the great commentaries of the past as, a, as an aid to help them uh, dig into what the Bible says. So I think that 16th, 17th century actually demonstrates that although we might think perspicuity shouldn't work in theory, it actually does work in practice. Um, you get hold of E.F.K. E. Muller's uh, collection of confessions from the 16th, 17th century and compare them. There's a huge amount of common ground confessionally that you would not find culturally if you're comparing Hungary with, with Scotland, for example. Greg, any thoughts on the clarity of Scripture, especially in light of uh, passages that are frequently disagreed upon? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that nothing is new under the sun. And again, within this broad, huge umbrella of evangelicalism, there are those who are saying that really 
Scripture just is not clear. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of a baptism of, of so-called postmodernism into evangelicalism, postmodernism saying that um, really uh, you can't know much. Um, and you can't understand what people say or what they write. So obviously if you're reading an ancient text like the Bible, you can't understand it. All you can do is kind of read into it your own interests and what you end up getting out of it is a reflection of your own interests. And um, But nothing is new under the sun. I'm assuming tonight you're going to talk about Erasmus. Um, so I'm not going to steal his thunder, but what Erasmus... Erasmus was a medieval uh, postmodernist, basically was saying scripture is not clear. And Luther was saying, yes, it is. And uh, he said, Luther was a man of assertions that he was confident in, in the scriptures. And Erasmus said, no, you know, we just can't understand that. And today people are saying, well, in evangelicalism, the spirit will give me this meaning, but it will give you another meaning, and we'll just respect one another, even if they're, they're contradictory meanings. I remember a student talking to me some years ago in the seminary cafeteria, and how glorious the Spirit was. It revealed one meaning of, of the same passage a few months earlier, and he said, and just yesterday, or the last few days, it's, I've given, it's given me a new meaning. It's completely contradictory to the other one. And I know that, you know, they're both true, and isn't the Spirit marvelous? And <laughs> I just said, I, you know, I... I don't think God communicates that way. There are mysteries in Scripture, but I don't think uh, that God is going to communicate contradictory truth and let's just respect one another about it. And, uh, uh, but if you don't believe Scripture is clear, that's the only route you can go, and there are many today who don't think that Scripture is clear. And I'm assuming tonight probably Carl will not only talk about the medieval roots of this, but um, some of the problems with the, the contemporary issue that I've, I've brought up. Is it another route that people might go to say that the Roman Catholic Church can give us an official interpretation of the necessary passages? Uh, we had a, a gentleman leave our church not that long ago, and that was one of his reasons. He left our church for the Roman Catholic Church. One of his reasons being no one agrees. And in the church, capital C, Roman Catholic Church, um, we, can, we can get it officialized. What do you think, Carl? Is that... Well, it, has a, Is that helpful? it has a specious attraction, uh, but in some ways it merely shunts the problem to another level because you're no longer dealing with the text of Scripture as perspicuous, you're now dealing with papal encyclicals as being perspicuous. And anybody who knows anything about contemporary Roman Catholicism knows that there are huge debates within the Catholic Church over what particular encyclicals mean. So I think if, you, if you're going to, to go the route of texts being fundamentally obscure, language being fundamentally opaque, and meaning being fundamentally indeterminate, the Catholic Church is only a temporary refuge. It appears to have the edge on Protestantism, but actually it merely pushes the problem to another level. And bottom line is, I think I'd trust God to be perspicuous before I'd trust the Pope to be perspicuous, if, I, if I've got to make my, make my choice. That's a great point. All right, let's wrap up this section by uh, just asking each of you if you can recommend some good reading first for pastors on the doctrine of Scripture, and you've already done that, so no need to repeat the ones you've already mentioned. Um, and then maybe just one or two recommendations for non-pastor Christians. So maybe, 
higher shelf, lower shelf. Recommendations on the doctrine of Scripture, um, reliability of the Bible. I think the, the volume of B.B. Warfield, uh, Inspirational Authority of the Bible, is still a very good place for, for Christians to start. Um, Generally for pastors? or for Pastors and for educated lay people. I don't think we should patronize lay people by saying we need to recommend simple stuff. I think B.B. Uh, Warfield on inspiration is... It is thick, though. Sorry? It is thick. There are plenty of pastors who haven't finished that. Yeah, and shame on them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, B.B. Warfield would be my starting, starting point. Um, there are a couple of very nice volumes edited, I think probably in the mid-80s, by Don Carson and John Woodbridge. One of them is entitled... Uh, um, Scripture and Truth. Scripture and Truth, and the other one is Hermeneutics, Authority, and Canon. That are a collection of essays by good biblical, systematic, and historical scholars on, on uh, matters of interest that, again, would be useful for scholars. And, of course, there's Greg's recent book on the authority of Scripture. The more popular, we were talking earlier, there's a book by a guy called uh, Oswald, The Bible Among the Myths. It's about 150, 200 pages, published by... I believe it's Zondervan, if I'm not mistaken. That's a good introduction to that question of, well, the, the Old Testament looks like the Epic of Gilgamesh and these other kind of things. That's a good way, it's a good way into that issue okay. that would work either for pastors or for lay people. Great. I would just affirm the books he's talked about and just reiterate again with regard to the canon, the book by um, uh, Kustenberger, uh, and who's his colleague again? Mike Kruger. Mike Kruger, uh, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, especially on, on, on the canon, which certainly is inextricably linked to this issue of the truth of Scripture. Okay. Well, let's get into issues uh, related to just a couple of comments you made today, Greg, about uh, Latter-day Tribulation. You said that uh, we're in the Tribulation um, that is the latter day. Uh, I, I don't want you to, to um, I don't want you to have to clarify that like it was uh, misunderstood what you said. But later comments. Um, us talking afterwards, uh, I think could be useful. You mentioned that uh, you think that there's a capital T tribulation at the end. Things might get worse at the end, and uh, there are antichrists now, but you think that there is an antichrist to come? Yeah, I, you know, I, I mentioned First John 2.18 in connection with uh, the Latter-day false teaching that I talked about in Second Timothy, and, and actually First Timothy. And that uh, passage in 1 John says, uh, my little children, it's the last hour. And just if you, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, I tell you many Antichrists have already come. From this we know it is the last hour. And, um, well, th th that phrase, last hour, comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 8, and uh, 11, and 12, which predicts the coming final tribulation, which theologians of all stripes agree. Yep, that's what Daniel's predicting. Well, here's 1 John referring to Daniel's last hour. Um, by the way, the last hour in Daniel actually is that, that coinage is a, a coinage from uh, one of the Greek versions of Daniel, but um, uh, it's interpreting, um, translating Daniel's eschatological language. So that last hour, John is saying, the last hour of Daniel and tribulation is to come and an end-time opponent is to come, who First John is calling the Antichrist. It's begun. 
don't see any other way around it. Uh, my little children, it is the last hour. You've heard that any crisis coming at the end, many, any crisis have already come from this, we know it's the last hour. Now what that means is I do think there will be a very physical, literal antichrist to come at the end. And uh, whereas the, the way that the tribulation has started, especially in First John's church community that he's writing to, is that there are these false teachers who come in denying either Christ's deity or his humanity. And um, uh, he's, he's saying these, you know, these are, are Antichrist. And chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says they're inspired by the spirit of the Antichrist. And chapter 2, verse 22 actually says they are the Antichrist. Just as there is a singular body of Christ composed of believers, there's a body of the Antichrist composed of false teachers. And so the, the end time tribulation has begun in the first century and throughout the church age. And uh, its, its main expression is persecution and false teaching. And often if you don't agree with the false teaching, you'll be persecuted. Um, but it's selective. It's not the whole church doesn't suffer from persecution at any given time in the church age, nor is the, every church infected by false teaching. Uh, it's selective. But at the end of the age, just as there'll be a physical antichrist, uh, it'll be more intense than all his antichrist precursors. So persecution will be universal. False teaching will be universal. And uh, the church will virtually go underground, Revelation 27 and following says. And uh, at that point, Christ will come and uh, uh, judge uh, the unbelieving persecutors on earth. So um, the practical upshot of that that I was trying to make today, I do think it's practical in the sense that if we uh, think that our, um, our, our battle in our sanctification is... Uh, a battle only between sin and ourselves and indwelling sin um, or um, worldly influences that, that we're, we're battling. That, that's only part of the battle. There's an actual end-time tribulation. The powers of evil are inspiring false teachers, and we need to realize that. And I think if we do realize that, instead of going like this, whew, boy, wipe the tribulation sweat off. Thank the Lord it's not here yet. I'm safe. Well, at that point, if it is here, you're susceptible to uh, having your soul harmed by false teaching uh, uh, that the spirit of the Antichrist, his spirit is, has come from the age to come. It's come back. And I picture the Antichrist as like that creature in Men in Black. Remember that alien creature with the antennas? Well, his antennas are coming. He's, he's at the end of history. He's still waiting to come, but his antennas have come back into history. And, and, and they are working through false teachers and they're curling around the legs of pastors as they're preaching and parishioners as they're listening. And those who don't know what's going on uh, can easily be stung by the poison of, uh, of false teaching. So I think that pastors would be a little bit more on their toes to read scripture, to guard their souls and the souls of those around them. If we really believed we were in the Great Tribulation, think about it. At the very end, you know, a lot of those people wiping the sweat off say, oh, thank, thank the Lord I'm not in that final tribulation. I'd really be vigilant over my soul. Well, we better be vigilant now. Tribulation's here. Not in its final form, but it is here. And there are dangers. And uh, I think it would make us more Christ-centered, not only word-centered, not only for preachers, but all of us uh, as Christians. I think it's a very... Helpful pastoral. Point. By the way, can I say one thing? Yeah, please do. Thank you. Um, 
I've said a lot of things, so I guess I might as well say one more. Uh, some of you came up after my uh, message uh, today and said, you said there were four things that were in common between the soldier and the athlete and the farmer. You only gave three. And I did subtly give the fourth, but I confess to you, it wasn't explicit. But uh, So they all have in common that they suffer. They all have in common a plan. They all have in common that they cannot carry out their task by occasional spurts of commitment or energy. And the fourth was, they all get a reward. The, uh, the soldier gets the victory, the athlete, the crown, and the farmer, the fruit. And so what's our reward? I don't think some Christians are getting a greater reward than others at the end. It's salvation. And uh, so I'm sorry about that. I saw the clock, <laughs> and uh, it caused me to slide a little bit. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Carl, you quoted the second Helvetic confession in one of your talks. The preaching of the word is the word of God. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and maybe uh, anticipate a skeptic saying, so it's the word of God even when he's not quoting scripture? Is it the word of God when he says something that's sort of off-cuff and sometimes off-color? I've been guilty of that. Yeah, I think uh, Bullinger wrote, Bullinger, Heinrich Bullinger, the, the, the great second-generation reformer of Zurich, wrote the Second Helvetic Confession. And I don't think what he's doing in that confession is attempting to uh, minimize the difference between Scripture and other words. He's not saying that what the pastor says is new, divinely inspired material that carries the same authority as the words of Paul. I think what he's trying to do is impress upon his readers that when the, when, when the appropriately ordained man preaches consistent with the word of God, then it has the authority of the word of God. That when, uh, when a man truly expounds and presses the word of God home on his congregation, it doesn't come as a bit of good advice from the good guy up in the pulpit. It comes with the full authority of God behind it. And as I said last night, I think what he's trying to do there is cultivate, he's also pointing towards an attitude in the congregation that, yes, we're all meant to be Bereans. We're all meant to test the scriptures to see if these things are so. When somebody comes along and says, this is what scripture says, we're to test scripture to see if it's so. But there is a difference there can be a great difference in our attitude to the way we do that. There are those who sit in church in judgment on the pastor all the time, just waiting for him to slip up, just waiting for him not to, to expand the passage quite as they would have done, not to get quite as deep into some issue as they would like to have done. Those who come with what I would describe as, as a suspicious or superior attitude where they're looking for the mistakes. Mm. And there are those who come with a basic trust that part of the Second Helvetic Convention says, you know, by a man legitimately called. This is somebody the congregation have called. They've called him. They've put him in his position of authority. They trust him to expound the word of God faithfully. Now, he's not going to expand it perfectly. Every pastor is going to make mistakes. But there's a great difference between the congregation who sit there in judgment on the pastor, waiting to catch him out, and the congregation who sit there knowing that he's a trustworthy servant. And therefore, trusting what he says, but nonetheless testing it by Scripture in order to make sure it's accurate. It's a, it's a cultural difference, perhaps, or a psychological difference. In some ways, it makes all the difference in the world. And I think that's what bullying is trying to impress on people there, that you don't go along to church to sit in judgment on the pastor. That's not the attitude to walk into church with. 
The attitude you go to church with is, I'm going to hear God speaking to me today. doesn't mean that I shirk my responsibilities to test what I'm hearing by Scripture, but I'm to have an attitude of, of humility and submission when I sit under the Word of God. Yeah, Luke records in Acts that the Bereans received the words with joy yeah. and, and tested it according yeah. to the scriptures. It seems like churches have camped out on the testing, uh, testing according to scripture a lot more than the receiving it with joy. Yeah. And people often, when it's interesting talking to people when they come out of church, uh, if they don't get anything out of the sermon, quite often the automatic assumption is the sermon wasn't very good. And sometimes that's the case. But I wonder if our first reaction should be, I wonder if I listened as I should have done. Um, I'm always interested in talking to my wife about the sermon after when we, when we both sit and hear a sermon together. You know, how did my wife react to it? If I haven't got anything from it, and I say to my wife, what did you think of the sermon this morning? And she said, oh, it was great. It really fed my soul. That gives me pause for thought. And think, well, maybe the problem was not with the man speaking. Maybe the problem was with me listening. Well, let's talk about listening to sermons then. Maybe each of you can speak to this and just offer um, suggested pitfalls and prescriptions for listening to sermons. We don't seem to talk about that. All kinds of books on preaching. Uh, I know we give out a book here um, on listening to sermons, but there are not many books on listening to sermons. So can you just give some practical advice for people on this whole thing of listening to sermons, which they do hopefully every week? Um, I, I can only speak personally. I, I generally don't take notes in sermons because that to me is what I did in lectures. And I like to sit and focus myself fully on what's being said as it's being said rather than, you know, there's a time delay when you hear something and write it down. You're never listening to what's being said. You're always processing what has just been said. So I don't like to take notes. I think it's important to pray before you go to church that your heart will be prepared for the reception of the word. We often tend to forget that the Holy Spirit is crucial both in interpreting Scripture correctly and in hearing Scripture read and preached. So pray for that the Lord will give His Holy Spirit to, to facilitate that. So those would be my two, two things. Um, don't text during sermons. Amen. Uh, uh, that, it, you'd be surprised at how many people, when you're preaching, you can see them sitting and texting in the in the pews, don't text, it's offensive apart from anything else, but it also stops you from listening properly. Yeah. Uh, That's great. Greg? There's always something. I mean, as long as the, the, the pastor, the preacher's preaching on the text of the Bible, which is not always an assumption we should make, but, um, but in evangelical churches, hopefully that, that happens a lot. And when it does happen... There's going to be something that's said that, that, that we can focus on. And if there are other things that distract you, go back to that. Focus on that. Meditate on that. Um, look at that verse and pray through it and then, you know, briefly and then, you know, uh, continue to listen. Um, there's always something that, uh, that we can focus on that, that we'll be edified by, built up with. Something to latch on to. I think so, yeah. yeah. It's the Word of God. It's mm. yeah. great. Well, speaking of latching on to, then let's talk about meditation. Um, and let's talk about quiet times. Someone wrote the question, are there ways in which you find the idea of the quiet time unhelpful? 
Carl, how about you? Um, I think there's been a big reaction against the idea of quiet time in certain circles recently. Uh, again, I think uh, some of the motivation for that's been good. There was a tendency, certainly when I became a Christian, there was a tendency to judge your spiritual health by whether you'd had a quiet time. And that, I think, spoke of a rather individualistic view of what it is to be a Christian. Um, I think that church is often a better gauge of your spiritual health than than the quiet time is. Having said that, the idea of uh, reading scripture every day, exposing yourself to the word every day, praying over scripture, uh, interceding, uh, confessing, all of the standard things that one does in prayer is a daily ritual. I think there's much to, to commend that. And I think that the reaction in some circles against the quiet time has gone too far in the, the opposite direction. Quite often we tend to want one thing or the other, whereas a both and is a better solution. One of my favorite pieces of, of Luther is his uh, letter to Peter on prayer. Peter was his barber. I'm wondering, you know, Peter comes to a rather bad end. R.C. Sproul has done this book, Peter the Barber, for children. He doesn't do the most exciting bit that certainly boys would be interested in knowing about Peter, which is the way he comes to an end. Peter the Barber gets drunk one night with his brother-in-law, and uh, his brother-in-law is convinced that because the local wise woman has cast a spell on him, he's invulnerable to injury. And he challenges Peter to stab him with a knife, um, which Peter does. And uh, unfortunately, he's not invulnerable to injury, and he dies, his brother-in-law. So Peter's sentenced to death, and Luther intercedes for him and has it commuted to, to life uh, in exile. That's irrelevant. I just love telling the story. Uh, but uh, when, when Luther, sometime earlier in Peter's career, Peter is cutting Luther's hair and says to, Peter, uh, says to Luther, I'm struggling with my... I'm struggling with my relationship with God. I don't seem to be able to pray. I pray and nothing, I don't feel I'm getting through. What do you advise? And uh, Luther goes home and writes this long letter to him that's then published as a booklet on prayer. A couple of beautiful things flow from this one. And the idea of Luther's the most, one of the busiest theological celebrities in Europe at the time. But he still has time to write an individual letter to this, this nobody. Uh, dealing with an issue in his life. And I think that's a very touching vignette into, into the kind of pastor that Luther was. But the content of the letter is interesting in that the advice is you need to do two things. You need to be reading the Bible on your own and praying, and you need to be getting yourself into church and hearing other people read the Bible and hearing the word preached. And I think that's a nice balance. I think the quiet time is very important because it's good to be familiar with Scripture and it's good to come before the Lord in prayer. And The Lord says, you know, when you pray... Don't do it in public. Go away somewhere private. And, uh, and Daniel, we know, prays privately, uh, uh, albeit he's in a situation of, of uh, some sort of political uh, geographical exile at that point, but he prays privately. I think private prayer is a good practice, but shouldn't supplant uh, or even become the main emphasis over against meeting with the saints and hearing the word preached and sung and uh, read. So, so treating scripture is uh, treating quiet time as this checklist and the mark upon which I'm judged by God, whether he's smiling upon me today, that's bad. But that's if it bad. leads you then to read your Bible less, that's bad. That's bad. Yeah. And I think it's also good to have a structured reading scheme as well. Mm-hmm. Don Carson's got these two great volumes of the love of God where he takes you through the, 
the whole Bible twice, I think. Uh, once each year, they said over two years. So you go through the whole Bible twice with a devotional reading for the passage that is selected for that day. Um, and also, he uses the McShane reading scheme, which has a nice variety of genres. On any given day, you might be reading a bit from the Gospel, something from the Epistle, something from a prophet, something from the Pentateuch. Yeah. So it keeps your interest as well in, in Bible reading. stops that's you good. getting into a rut. Yeah, yeah I think if it's a, uh, reading your Bible and so-called quote-unquote, quiet time, if it's a, just a legalistic duty by which you uh, feel more spiritual, you know, as I think, Carl, as you said, is, is not good. On the other hand, because of our covenantal uh, relationship with God and our commitment to Him, um, just as mates make a, a marriage covenant, by the way, uh, I think that there is a covenant of marriage. If you're interested, I have a book that's written a 300 I have a friend who's written a 300-page book on marriage as a covenant. Uh, we dialogue. We, we have a commitment to, um, to our mates to, to dialogue with them, and I think we have a commitment with the Lord to dialogue with him, and that partly certainly comes through his word, and even when we don't feel like it, we should. Now, that can easily merge into, oh, that's legalist. I'm only, only doing this out of duty. Well, there is a sense in which, yes, when we don't feel like it, we still come to the Lord in his word by faith because we're going to be loyally, covenantally committed to him, and that's an expression of that commitment. Having said that, if you remember in Psalm 1, verse 2, and in 2 Timothy 2, and uh, verse 4, um, the psalm said, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and therefore in his word, in his Torah, he meditates day and night. And then, of course, uh, in the 2 Timothy passage, our desire is to please. We guard Scripture and uh, because we want to please the Lord. There's a desire there that should be there. And if it isn't there, we ought to pray the Lord would revive that in us as we continue to, to uh, come to his word. And I do think that we're not just talking about reading the word, but prayer has been mentioned. And one thing that's just very much helped me, uh, well, a couple of things. Number one is when I can, and when you're reading a genealogy, it's harder to do this, but to turn scripture into prayer. When you're reading the Psalms, it's very easy. And, um, um, in fact, uh, prayer this morning, um, you did that. It's beautiful uh, to turn these, so you just change the pronouns. That's all you have to do. And, um, uh, but there's a lot that you can turn into prayer. I, I, I heard this when I was just out of college. That I heard, I'm assuming it's true, that uh, Wesley and Whitfield were in a Bible study together, I think, at Oxford. And in their Bible studies, they would uh, pray through Scripture, turn it into a prayer. And I have found, actually, that that is an approach to understanding the Bible. Because I find that when I look at it in Greek, analyze it, and that's good. But when I pray through it, I'm looking at it from a different vantage point. And it's actually a, a, a way to hear God speak to me as I'm praying through it. To him. And that, that really has been so helpful to me. The other thing is the schedule. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm, if, if I'm not on a schedule, I have a hard time reading the Bible regularly. Now, for myself, my, my wife and I, we found the one-year Bible to be helpful. I don't read it in one year. I read it in two years. So maybe I'm not as spiritual as those who read it in one. But um, they have a two-year schedule. And so I, I, I read the two years. And... Um, 
Uh, and as I said, uh, I think I mentioned last night this, um, this book, The Valley of Vision, uh, a book of Puritan prayers, unbelievable. Uh, just has helped me to pray, the very biblical prayers. So those are some reflections. Greg, I thought your three things, your first talk, I believe, um, things that get in the way of our Bible reading, you said expectation of the sensational, media, immersion, syndrome, and busyness. I wonder if maybe uh, each of you could comment on this. Because you're involved in seminary training and have been for a number of years, related to that second one, the media, immersion, syndrome, do you Mm -hmm. think that web, blogs, Social media are changing how people think. There's a, a new book out, or is it an article? Um, how Google changes the way we think, something like that. Are you seeing people showing up for seminary? Dumb? <laughs> <laughs> More dumb than usual? A little slow, hard to. Well, I'm trusting keep... Jonathan to keep them out, but. Uh... <laughs> I, I think that it's, it's clear that, uh, I, I think one needs to make a distinction, that clearly media do change the way people think and they write. So often we tend to make the leap to saying that's a bad thing. And I'm not sure that just because the internet, Google, blogs, etc., are changing the way people, people write and read, we should necessarily jump to saying that's a bad thing. Um, and the printing press changed the way people thought. Television has done the same. There's a, you know, is it necessarily a bad thing that these changes take place, or do we need to acknowledge these changes and then adapt ourselves to them? And I think um, one thing that I, I've consciously been trying to do myself recently is write shorter sentences, because I'm becoming aware that people don't read as long sentences these days. So I think we're blind if we don't think the media are changing things, but it's not necessarily a bad thing, much as I, you know, I like the way things were in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I'm not sure that I should impose the way 70s and 80s were on today and say just because it's different, it's worse. Um, I do think that the, myself, I think the fact that they have all of these things often coming in on a single gadget can be problematic. I feel this myself. My Bible scheme is on my mobile phone. And I'd notice that, you know, when I'm using my Bible scheme here and I'm reading about that, I'll see an email ping up. And it gets very difficult to read my Bible when I know there's an email waiting for me on my, my mobile phone. So I've had to take it to, I put it into air, airplane mode. Whenever I use my Bible scheme, I put it in airplane mode. I try to keep my phone switched off as much as I can during times when I'm studying. So I think that it's, it's not so much media is changing the way we think, but we have to be very self-conscious about not allowing it to intrude on periods of time that is to be devoted to other things. That would be my own, my own experience of That's great. My focus was not so much on the Internet, but more on uh, the television media, perhaps radio media, where in our times of relaxation especially, we're uncritically exposing ourselves to the media and at those times, I think it's very easy, subtly, unconsciously, the more we're immersed in that uncritically to begin to take on the, the worldview of the media. And my point was that worldview is that God's not active in the individual affairs of uh, daily life. And so we begin to feel a little more odd um, um, because we're not fitting into what we're beginning to think is the normal view of the world. And so... I wasn't so much thinking of the 
internet, I think. Again, it, it cuts both ways on the internet. It's good. It's um, you know, certainly, we all know that um, uh, the pornographic element, it's opened a whole new window there. Well, that's bad. You know, as Carl said, we've got to adapt and adapt in a godly way. But I also think we need to be more critical as well on the grounds that pornography is an interesting one. We all know it's wrong, and we can all generally avoid it if we put our minds to it. Uh, it's the things that aren't obviously wrong, but which are sending continual signals to us that I think are problematic. Commercials. It's quite stunning moving from the UK to, to the United States, even our commercial channels. I think you're allowed something like six minutes of commercials for every hour of television. So 10% of television time is commercials. Here, I've not timed it, but it seems to be a lot more than, than 10%. But, you know, but commercials, what are they doing? They're, they're selling dissatisfaction because they're trying to sell you something. They're making you dissatisfied, and they're projecting images of happiness that's found in terms of material possessions. Most of us would say, oh, you know, there's an NC-17 film on tonight. I'm going to switch the television off. I'm not going to watch it. But we're quite happy for our kids to sit there and have these messages about the meaning of life equaling material possessions sent to them 15 minutes out of every hour. So I, I think in terms of media, we need to be much more critical and thoughtful than we generally are. The analogy I use in, at Westminster, and I've talked about these things, is you know, pornography and violence... It's like the guy running down your street wielding a chainsaw, wearing a ski mask. You see him coming, you get into your house, you lock the door, you phone the police. Commercials, things like that, it's like sitting in your house and the, and the chimney is blocked and the house is slowly filling up with carbon monoxide. Mm. And by the time you realize the deadly danger's there, it's too late. You're already dead. Mm. So whether it's content or the way in which we're thinking, um, we have to fight to protect our minds, to renew our minds, and uh, to keep thinking, right? I mean, we're talking yeah. about um, whether media lead us down a path of thoughtlessness or bitty information. I, th I think that's not unique to, to our age necessarily in that every age before us mm -hmm. has had to, to fight to stay connected with their Bibles, right? To, to keep yeah. thinking, keep praying. It was hard in the 17th century for Luther's barber to keep praying. If you read uh, Blaise Pascal's uh, thoughts, 17th century French Christian philosopher, when he describes the French court, he's describing a world that is just preoccupied with pleasure, the spectacular, and the moment. Mm -hmm. It could be describing Britain or America today. Mm. Yeah. Okay, great.